0: Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Gemma Purdy from Monash University. For our discussion today, we're focusing on women's activism and gender activism in a week in which Indonesia remembers Kartini, a symbol of women's emancipation. We consider what is the present state of the women's movement that Kartini pioneered over 100 years ago, and why is it that sexuality and the female body continue to be sites for contestation and national anxiety? How are women's and other marginal groups responding to the conservative turn in Indonesia? To explore these questions, my guest today is Intan Paramadita. Intan is an Indonesian fiction writer and lecturer in media and film studies at Macquarie University in Sydney. Her research interests focus on sexual politics, independent film practices, and cultural activism. Welcome, Intan, and thanks for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Thank you for having me. Intan, last year uh, you wrote a piece for the Jakarta Post in which you described a general anxiety in Indonesia about the idea of the nation, and particularly around this question of who has the right to claim national belonging. It seems to me that given the atmosphere in which the Jakarta gubernatorial election has been carried out in recent months, where identity and religion and morality have featured. This is a particularly pertinent idea that you raise. Can you explain what you mean about this idea of anxiety, about the idea of the nation, and maybe try to explain to us why it's happening now and where it's coming from? Okay, I think in Peu Suharto, Indonesia, different
1: groups pose their own ideas of what the nation is and what the nation should be and sexuality is very much part of the way in which nation and national belonging are imagined. So when the New Order regime ended, we were confronted with a question now, how do we define indonesia and uh, 1998 reformasi it results in different trajectories so different groups they have different ideas what indonesia is the secular groups the muslim groups the pluralist muslims the conservative muslims so there's a contestation about the idea of nationhood and this is reflected in various national debates in the past two decades from the pornography law in mid 2000 to the criminalization of lgbt communities in the recent years and in these national debates sexuality is often a part of what's contested. It's a way in which different groups envision the nation. So, yeah, when we talk about anxiety, I think going back to Benedict Anderson's idea of nation as imagined community. So when we think about nation, there are always imagined boundaries. Who is the national other? What are the limits of the nation? In this case, for the conservative groups especially. There is an anxiety about the national other. If Indonesia has always been represented by a heteronormative family, what about LGBT groups? Can they represent Indonesia? So I think because of the anxieties of who is part of the nation and who is not, there have been efforts at the government level as well as the civil society to marginalize the bodies that do not fit into the idea of the nation and, and national morality and unfortunately women who are not well behaved you know like if we remember Ino the case of Ino the Dangdut, uh, performer in 2003 mm-hmm. um, there was a huge controversy and Islamic Council of Scholars they claim that Inu's dance was haram, and now LGBT people were were criminalized. So certainly there is always the national other within the imagination of nationhood.
0: Yes, so you're saying it's not new, this term that that we've seen in the last 12 months, particularly around the anti-LGBT discourse? No,
1: um, in fact... I think Indonesia has been preoccupied with the issues of gender and sexuality in the past two decades. If we think about what happened since early 2000, every year there's always a case. But most of these cases, they receive a lot of media attention. So, for instance, the Enol controversy in 2003 when the MOE issued a fatwa against Enol. And Enol actually triggered the more intense discussion of the, at that time it was called, anti-pornography bill. And then there was also the case of Playboy Indonesia and the Indonesian Playboy office was attacked by Islam Defenders Front by the FBI. And it was 2006, I think, at that moment, the anti-pornography bill was introduced to the public. So every year there was always something. And of course, the anti-pornography bill, it was probably the longest and the most divisive national debate in the post-Suharto Indonesia. It was first introduced in 2006, and then after that, 2008, it was ratified as law. People tried to propose judicial review but they failed, and then in 2010, there were three LGBT, three attacks on LGBT-related events, Mm -hmm. so this has been going on, and there's always women's bodies, and recently LGBT bodies and sexualities, they're always targeted, and I think it's because sexuality is always part of how you imagine the nation and what the nation should be. Mm
0: -hmm. Who are the initiators of some of these attacks?
1: So, of course, we can talk about the Muslim vigilante groups as being separated from the larger Islamic groups. So even the Muslim group like PKS, the Prosperous Justice Party, is really trying to keep a distance from vigilante groups. But their actions are very much influential in terms of decision making. So policymakers, they really take into account, well, we should impose censorship because we don't want any trouble from the radical or from the vigilante group so there are different groups and they have different concerns but i think the whole atmosphere is moving toward conservatism and sexuality here is a contested arena for the secular groups because my own research is about secular culture of producers they are mostly filmmakers and film festival organizers film critics they think that the freedom to talk about sexuality and sexual rights sexual identities it's all part of the democratic indonesia what what in indonesia that they envision But for the conservatives, it's something else. Sexuality is a tool for consolidating power. It's something to think about when you want to incorporate Islam in the new vision of nationhood. So in this case, deviant sexuality by Islamic standard should be seen as a marker of exclusion when they think about nation. Yeah. For the government, it's, it's also something. So, conservative groups might not be dominant in the government, but the government is using sexuality as well to assert authority. It has been going on since the Suharto regime, actually. Mm -hmm. Sexuality has been used to to discipline the bodies of the citizens, especially now because citizens have little faith in the authority of the state. So new regulations about bodies and sexualities, they need to be produced to to make sure that the state produces disciplined subjects and they really take into account the views uh, around the bodies and sexuality that are dominant right and the dominant views are of course the one proposed by the conservative groups.
0: If you look back to the new order period where there were similar efforts to control the meanings you know that you're discussing here around sexuality and the parameters and limitations how is it different now than in the new order period? In
1: the new order period it was very much institutionalized. For instance, the regulation of gender and sexuality, women are discouraged from participating in politics. That's state-regulated, so women could only organize themselves in organizations like Dharma Wanita. But then, the uh, other challenges are elements of the civil society, and they could actually affect state policies. So the state is probably not as oppressive as in the Suharto period, mm-hmm. but these elements of civil society, they are definitely more influential in state policies.
0: Are we equating conservatism with Islam and the movement for Islamic conservatism?
1: Martin van Brunessen wrote, an edited volume about the conservative turn in Indonesia in 2013, I guess. That's a a good reference to look at when it started and who are these people. He mentions uh, basically By 2005, a conservative turn had taken a place in mainstream Islam. So we could see them as Muhammadiyah and and, the modernist and liberal Muslims were taken over by more conservative groups, by people who wanted a more restrictive version of Islam. And it was 2005 as well that conservative groups define who their enemies are. At that time, there was a fatwa issued by the Indonesian Council of Islamic Scholars by the MOE. And the fatwa declared that secularism, pluralism, and liberalism are not islamic they call it sipilis islam in indonesia is of course very diverse but what we see now is the more visibility of conservative groups and some conservative groups are in a way uh, more aggressive in their actions like vigilante groups fpe for instance but i think we should not reduce conservative muslims as fpe because, you know, a lot of the middle class Muslims, they're very conservative, but they don't want to uh, align themselves with FBE. And they really reject FBE's violence. Conservative should be seen in a more um, complex way.
0: In the article where you're also talking about the, this general anxiety, you have this really interesting discussion about the limits on what you call gerakan politik, so the you know political movement in post Order uh-huh. Indonesia. Can you talk a little bit about how that has happened, that now nearly two decades after Suharto stepped down, political activity in Indonesia is still yet to be, be normalized?
1: First of all, we have been trained by the new order to be suspicious of political movements. So that's why when LGBT groups proclaim themselves as, as political groups, political movements, there there was a lot of backlash because if it's just um, regular groups perhaps it's okay if it's just individuals it's okay according to a lot of people but if it's a political movement then perhaps they will you know they they will really impose particular ideology and i think this is rooted in the new order framework where we are not encouraged as citizens we were not encouraged to participate in politics and every political gestures were leading to something dangerous so that's the history there but I think reformasi really created a different kind of citizenship or a different idea of citizenship inspired by the student movement. People feel that they need to participate, they need to be politically engaged and that political engagement should be expressed in public. And so that's why LGBT movements, they're more visible and women's movement, it's more visible as well.
0: As something that's separate from some kind of activity within the political party system, is that? Yeah, it
1: yes, it's something that emerges organically from the civil society, and that's actually what's exciting. If we look at post-Suharto Indonesia, I remember when Jokowi won the election, uh, there were some articles about the rise of the relawan or the volunteer Mm -hmm. figures. People were suddenly very politically engaged. Mm -hmm. But that has been going on since the fall of Suharto. Uh, Everybody uh, wants to take part in at least politically, they join demonstrations, they join social movements, and it's very lively. They go to the constitutional court, they protest if they find something wrong. But I think there's a limit to this, and I I guess I'm using the term from Melani Budianta, the feminist scholar in Indonesia. She talks about women's movement in the the late 1990s, but I think it really applies to our uh, situation now. Um, She uses the term emergency activism. So we are driven to act to be uh, to affiliate to take actions because there's a sense of urgency because we respond to crises and yeah. of course there are a lot of crises after the the end of the Suharto regime because this is the period of experimentations and the state is experimenting with different policies sometimes those policies are creating surprises shocks etc and we respond of course, this is really lively uh, it's really dynamic, uh, yeah, as Melanie Budianta also um, warned us there's there's a problem of sustainability. Yeah. how do we think about sustainability if we are constantly alarmed by crises?
0: Okay, so you said that uh, you referred to the Ralawan movement around Jokowi as as coming from this space. What's happened to that since? Is there some sustainability there as in, during his term, do you think?
1: I think some people, they actually continue, they work closely with Jokowi, but some others, they go back to their normal lives and, you know, they continue their daily job and then they will respond on new some new emergency cases so it's it's always like a a cycle of crisis then going back to normal and then crisis again
0: and where do these people go they just go back to their normal lives but their concerns must remain why not join a political party or become involved in the formal processes
1: i think some activists they finally join political parties but for many of us for instance those who experienced 98 or those who were involved in 98 there was this sense of staying in the margin staying in the opposition because that's the myth of um, 98 right this is about the fo- the voice of resistance from the margin yeah. and that the margin <laughs> kind of um, took over the street so there there's that myth and i think There's the legacy of that myth, but at the same time, yeah, there are some people who actually join political parties, some people, I know that, um, again, because I work closely with cultural producers, I know that some activists, cultural activist friends of mine, they actually decided to work within government institutions, thinking that they could create a change within the system. Yeah. I think there's there's something good about it, but it's also very hard because they really have to do uh, this reform from within and that means they have to negotiate with this corrupt culture that has been going on for ages. I find that it's really hard for a lot of people yes. to to create reform from within.
0: But at least there are those who are there and are trying that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and because we are not there, we tend to support them.
0: But tell us now a little bit about your particular area of interest and women's resistance. Are there examples that you can tell us about where women's activism in particular might have tried to combat this growing conservatism? Can you tell us you know, some examples from literature, film, and art.
1: I categorize women's resistance into three phases. So the first phase was the early phase of reformacy, uh, and I call this phase resistance towards state ibuism or state motherism. And this is, of course, a term coined by Julia Suryakusuma. She refers to how women's roles were institutionalized by the state as mothers and wives. So during this first phase, women were more concerned with the constructions of gender and sexuality framed by the New Order regime. So women writers and women filmmakers such as Ayutami, Nanahnas, and Nia Dinata, they challenged the idea of women as ibu, as good wives and mothers the engagement with the conservative turn begin i think in mid 2000 in, in what i call the second phase of activism i tentatively call this porno paranoia because the pornography bill is very much of it so uh, the debates and the expressions are shaped by the presence of debates around the pornography bill in public and this was the first time when artists really realized that there's something going on, that there's this conservative turn going on, although at that time it's not something that they could um, fully grasp. But there are some artistic expressions which started to capture this phenomenon. For instance, the film Berbagi Suami or Love for Share by Nia Dinata, it's a subtle critique of the polygamy phenomenon which was of course um, promoted by some conservative groups and right now i think we are in the most uh, current phase of activism and i call this the phase of viral feminism i think it started to happen five years ago this is characterized by a new wave of feminist um, artists and activists who engage with feminist digital media practice so they're very savvy in terms of digital media activism they try to bring women's issues more into popular culture and of course they use all these different social media platforms such as twitter facebook and instagram for their art
0: can you give me an example of one or two of those
1: some examples are uh, musician Katika Yahya and the uh, Bersama project. So they launched a music video called Tubuhku, Otoritasku, My Body, My Authority which it basically claims women's body as their own and this music video became viral through a different social media platform. I think what's interesting about this video is that you see a Muslim woman with a hijab and mm-hmm. she has writings on her hand that says uh, tubuhku bukan penjaga imanmu. My body is not the guardian of your faith because you know it it's, it really really responds to the whole idea that women's body should be restricted because it it could create some troubles with the faith. Yeah. So I think the new development is there are more popular feminist publications online. Women activists use the media in more sophisticated ways. And there's a feminist website called The Magdalene. Maybe the US counterpart is Bitch Media. So both Bitch Media and The Magdalene introduce feminist perspectives to mainstream media and popular culture. And a lot of its uh, the Magdalene's contributors are young people in their early 20s. So the magazine really, sorry, the website really speaks to readers who are at the moment when they are discovering gender politics and activism. So there's there are new things going on. So yeah, mm-hmm. on the uh, on the one hand we have this whole conservative turn. Uh, women are sort of pressured to behave in particular ways. But on the other hand there are also new developments in in terms of gender activism. And I think it's a good response because the conservative groups—they are also very media savvy. Yeah. They use yeah, they use WhatsApp groups, they use um, Facebook, Twitter to actually create, to disseminate news and messages that are ideologically disturbing. So I think it's a good counter
0: movement. And so that you're describing this movement as consisting mostly of. 20 somethings yeah so it's quite a young young movement are they engaging with the you know older generations of activists as well women activists
1: some of them yes but i think yeah well if we talk about women's movement in indonesia are solidarity there are affiliations but There are also differences and gaps and disjunctures. Yes, there is a gap between this um, generation of women activists and the older generation because. At the same time, in Indonesia, there's also a bad archiving and documentation uh, system. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what other people have done before. So what older feminists have done, it really needs to be introduced and reintroduced at the popular level because uh, this is not something accessible easily to the younger
0: generation. Okay, so for example, would... Someone like Julia Surjakusuma, who you mentioned, would she be well known? Uh-huh. Would she be well known amongst the younger generation of feminists?
1: Uh, for some people, yeah, but <laughs> but there are also um, young feminists who would say, "Well, we only have women's movement in Indonesia is only a few decades old, and that's yeah. you know that's really historically incorrect."
0: Yeah, as you say, like a real loss of um, historical memory that needs to be recovered.
1: Uh, Julia Suryakusuma is still quite popular. Um, I mean, she appears in me- in the media yeah. from time to time. She has her own column in- at the Jakarta Post. Mm-hmm. But uh, they don't know about, let's say, Saparina mm-hmm. um from the 1980s, 70s generation, yes. and even Gerwani as the largest women's organization in the 50s, 60s. So a lot of young feminists are not really aware about this, but some others, mm-hmm. they, they're they actually looking for this information.
0: That's great. And so you keep using the term feminist, but I wanted to ask you if this term is, is used in Indonesia and, and how it is defined, how people react to it. As you know, in, in the West, it's kind of been a contentious, term in but in indonesia what, what do people think of it i think to some
1: extent feminism and feminists are like in western countries they are bad words <laughs> they are they're even vilified yeah. so when Zapari- I mentioned Zaparina sadly so she established the first women's studies program at the University of Indonesia in early 2000 and she said when she and her colleagues decided to open the program they avoided the term feminist and feminist perspective because this would create a backlash in the academic community because feminism is considered as a western ideology and it's not compatible with Indonesian values so they used uh, women's perspective instead although they are actually talking about feminist theories and the negative perception about feminism is still uh, strong even today but at the same time this new wave this new generation of uh, feminists the 20-something feminists they they are very much inspired by the global movement and also by you know celebrity feminism like uh Beyonce and Taylor Swift yeah. so the the term feminist is it becomes something desirable for for their generation but on the other hand lately this group of women called Ila Love Family Alliance they went to the constitutional court and they demanded the court to criminalize homosexuality and non-marital sex, and they uh, expressed a clear anti-feminist position, arguing that feminists are are the roots of moral degradation among young women, and feminists uh, are supporters of LGBT movement. There's this negative perception of feminism and feminists. They're kind of preserved, especially among the conservative groups.
0: But what's exciting is that viral feminism movement, as you describe it, is defying all of that. And that's finding a way around a lot of the limitations within Indonesia via the web. Are there any women in in politics, in formal politics at the moment that appeal to you as good role models?
1: We are all inspired by Sri Mulyani, of course. <laughs> but I think there has been a concern among women activists. The, f- the feminist activists, they fought for this freedom and for this political participation. But a lot of women who are in power right now or at least they they're in the DPR or something they are not really struggling for women's rights mm-hmm. for instance there's this activist slash DPR uh, member Fahira Idris who's super conservative and who's anti-LGBT and anti-feminist mm-hmm. but she is there in the in the DPR because there has been a long struggle which actually took her there so it's a
0: disappointment. <laughs> Sorry. Intan, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Thanks for all of your insights and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much. That was Intan Paramadita from Macquarie University and formerly of University of Indonesia. Intan received her PhD from New York University in 2014. She has written for many journals and volumes including The Jakarta Post, Inside Indonesia, Visual Anthropology, and Inter-Asia Studies. You can follow her work, including her fiction writing, on her blog, intanparamadita.org. Talking Indonesia will return on the 11th of May, hosted by my colleague Charlotte Setijadi Dunn. Remember you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, You can subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or you can find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.